Hello, and welcome to Talk Murder with Me, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is episode one, The Murder of Jesse Valencia. Before I get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you for listening. This is something I've been planning to do for a long time now, and I'm really excited to finally be making it happen. The early hours of June 5th, 2004 saw college students at the University of Missouri stumbling back to their apartment buildings after a typical Friday night of drunken antics. The university, also known as Mizzou, is located in Columbia, Missouri and is currently attended by 30,000 students from across the United States and abroad. It is the largest university in Missouri, as well as the flagship campus of the University of Missouri system. It would still be a couple of hours before the sun would rise, but Columbia being a college town meant students felt pretty safe walking home in the dark. Violent crime is relatively rare. The majority of calls to the police were to report behavior typical of college campuses, such as noise complaints and or drunken and disorderly conduct. Later on in the morning in question, however, calls would be made to the Columbia Police Department regarding a far more sinister crime. Once they had sufficiently recovered from their hangovers, students emerged from their apartments to start the day. A group of friends were walking past a row of apartment buildings when they spotted someone lying on the ground between two buildings. They didn't need to get much closer to see the person was not just passed out on the grass. It quickly became clear, given the amount of blood, that this person was dead. The police were called and quickly arrived at the scene. At first, they considered that this may be a tragic accident. Given the location of the body between the two buildings, it was possible that the person had been drunkenly trying to jump from the roof of one building to the other. Closer examination, however, led them to quickly rule out the accident theory. The body, which belonged to a young man in his 20s, was naked apart from a pair of blue boxer shorts. The source of the blood on and around his body was a knife wound to the neck which was so deep the blade had nicked his spine during the attack. The body was identified as that of 23-year-old Jesse Valencia, a junior at the university majoring in pre-law. College life had been going very well for Jesse. He had plenty of friends, was excelling in his classes, and earning some extra money working as a clerk at a local motel. He was also embracing life as a young gay man. Being charming with classic good looks, he had no trouble finding romantic partners. Jesse was born in Danville, Kentucky on February 22, 1981. His mother, Linda, began a relationship with Lupe Valencia when Jesse was very young. Lupe and Jesse bonded. Lupe would be the only father Jesse would ever know. Linda and Lupe had two daughters together, Rachel and Maria, whom Jesse adored. Lupe owned many horses and passed his love of the animals on to Jesse. 
Jesse's friends and family described him as a passionate, worldly person who loved life and was eager to learn and would always be there for a loved one in need. Jesse had been working at his motel job on the evening of June 4th. When his shift finished, he made his way to a campus party where he became quite drunk. A review of Jesse's cell phone records revealed that he had had several conversations that night, including one with a fellow student named Ed McDevitt, which took place at 3.13 a.m., lasting 2 minutes and 40 seconds. Detectives questioned Ed McDevitt, who confirmed that he and Jesse had been sleeping together. The last time they were together, he said, was two nights before Jesse was killed. On the night of Jesse's murder, McDevitt told detectives that he was at home with his roommate, who confirmed his alibi. The medical examiner estimated that Jesse had been killed sometime before dawn, in the spot where his body was found later that morning. The knife used to cut his throat had a serrated blade. There were no defensive wounds characteristic of a knife attack on Jesse's hands, which initially came as a surprise to detectives. However, this finding made more sense when the medical examiner found marks on his neck consistent with strangulation. It was therefore determined that Jesse had been strangled and was unconscious before the perpetrator had cut his throat. Jesse's apartment was about a block from where his body was found. When detectives arrived, they found his door was open, but there was no sign of a disturbance or any foul play having taken place inside. Under a pile of clothes, detectives found a used condom, which was subsequently tested for DNA. The results of the test revealed the profiles of two individuals, Jesse and Ed McDevitt. More questions arose when DNA tests were carried out on Jesse's fingernails. As was discovered on the condom, there were traces of Jesse and McDevitt's DNA, but there was also a profile of a third unknown individual. Detectives went about questioning Jesse's friends, appealing for anyone with information from the night of the murder to come forward. One young man, Andy Shermerhorn, had some particularly interesting information to share. Shermerhorn informed the detectives that he and Jesse were friends with benefits. They had met several months earlier and had had sex a few times. One of these times, something happened which made his head spin. It was the middle of the night and he and Jesse were in bed together when there was a knock at the door. Jesse got out of bed and opened it. A police officer, in uniform and shining a flashlight, entered the apartment. Shermerhorn, startled by the police officer's presence, sat up in bed and wrapped the sheet around himself. The officer told Jesse and Shermerhorn to carry on. Jesse reassured Shermerhorn that he knew the mysterious officer. Jesse then proceeded to invite the officer into bed with them. The three engaged in sexual activity, and when they were finished, the officer got up and dressed. 
He told Shermerhorn that no one could know about what had happened. Then, as fast as he appeared, he was gone. Unsurprisingly, the detectives and other police officers were seriously alarmed by the story. There was a possibility that whoever was responsible for Jesse's murder may be one of their own. As it turned out, Jesse had spoken to his mother Linda about his relationship with the police officer, but never told her his name. In fact, Jesse may not have even known his real name. According to Linda, Jesse described the officer as stalking him, but he really did not know much about the officer at all. Jesse had expressed to Linda that he was becoming suspicious of the man because he pretty much had no clue who he was. Andy Shermerhorn was asked to come to the Columbia Police Station to help identify the officer who had been in Jesse's apartment that night. Identifying the officer turned out to be easy for Shermerhorn. As he was walking down the hall of the station, another officer walked by. Shermerhorn was spooked. Once he arrived at the room where he was meant to be looking at the Columbia PD yearbook photos, he informed the detective escorting him that the man who had walked by them just seconds ago in the hall was the same man he and Jesse had been in bed with that night. Stephen Rios was a 27-year-old patrolman who had served in the Columbia PD for three years. He was married and had a new baby at home. According to his colleagues, he was a well-liked and respected member of the police force. His superiors were confident in his abilities and were sure he was headed for great success. Rios was described as ambitious but a strict rule follower. His colleagues at the Columbia PD were shocked to learn that he had been involved with Jesse. They could not fathom the possibility that he played any part in the murder. Jesse and Rios met about two months before at a party that Jesse had attended. The police had been called to shut the party down. Jesse, who was known for being argumentative, ended up being arrested by Rios and given a municipal court summons for obstructing a government operation when he asked for probable cause. This was the beginning of the strange relationship between student and police officer. Rios drove Jesse to the station, asking him a number of personal questions on the drive. The day after the party, he came to Jesse's apartment uninvited, saying he had more questions, but what he really wanted was sex. Over the next few months, Rios continued to come over unannounced and the two would sleep together. According to Jesse's friend, Joan Sheridan, Jesse was upset that the charge from the night of the party had not been dismissed, given his relationship with Rios. The next time the police officer comes over, I'm going to tell him that I have a little secret the chief of police might want to know, Jesse said to Sheridan. After the revelation from Shermerhorn, Rios was questioned. Initially, he denied having sexual relations with Jesse, but when confronted with the eyewitness testimony from Shermerhorn, he conceded that he and Jesse had been having sex. 
As for the murder, however, he vehemently denied any involvement, telling detectives he was at home in bed with his wife that night. Rios agreed to provide a DNA sample, which was compared with the DNA found under Jesse's fingernails. It was a match, formally identifying the previously unknown third individual's identity. However, the finding did not prove involvement in the murder on Rios's part, nor was the relationship between Rios and Jesse illegal. Following questioning by detectives, Rios was released. When examining Jesse's body again, the medical examiner noticed distinctive bruising across his chest, as well as between his shoulder blades. The bruising indicated that Jesse had been restrained using a chokehold technique called a uni unilateral vascular neck restraint the intention of which is to cause the person being restrained to fall unconscious in a matter of seconds. A law enforcement trainer viewed Jesse's bruises and agreed that they may well have been the result of this type of restraint, but it was possible that the technique had not been administered properly and Jesse had fought whoever was trying to restrain him, causing more bruising. Detectives looked into Rios's police file, finding that he had failed the defensive tactics course during his training, further adding to the evidence against him. As well as the bruising on Jesse's chest, there were a number of small, dark hairs that were not Jesse's. They turned out to be limb hairs, likely from the arm of the perpetrator who attempted the chokehold. Several of the hairs still had the root attached, meaning they could be tested for DNA. They came back as a match to Stephen Rios. Rios continued to deny any involvement in Jesse's murder. However, it would be revealed that he was not, in fact, at home the whole night Jesse was killed. There was a 45-minute period in which he had gone out and no one could account for his whereabouts. Stephen Rios was charged with first-degree murder. He entered a plea of not guilty. Special Prosecutor Morley Swingle, who had been working on the case from the beginning, told the jury that on the night Jesse was killed, Rios had shown up at Jesse's apartment unannounced, as he often did. According to Jesse's mother, Linda, Jesse had found out that Rios was married with a child. Jesse had been apprehensive about the relationship from the start, but this new revelation helped make up his mind. He wanted to end the affair. Swingle argued that Jesse threatened to tell Rios' superiors about their affair if he did not leave him alone. This enraged Rios, who did not want to end the affair, and definitely did not want his family or colleagues finding out about it. Rios became aggressive, causing Jesse to run outside to get away from him. But Rios came after him, grabbing him from behind and using the chokehold on him. The two struggled, but Jesse soon fell unconscious from the chokehold. In a rage, Rios cut Jesse's throat and fled the scene. Rios's lawyer, Valerie Leftwich, attempted to smear Jesse's character in defense of her client. She painted him as promiscuous and loud-mouthed with a volatile personality. 
She argued that he had many lovers who made better suspects than her client. There will be evidence that Jesse Valencia had sexual contact with a lot of men he picked up over the internet or that he picked up in a bar, including Stephen Rios, she said. The jury were not convinced by Leftwich's flimsy arguments and sided with the forensic science. In May 2005, the jury in Rios's trial found him guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His first conviction was overturned by the Missouri Court of Appeals, Western District, because of hearsay statements that were ruled inadmissible in court. A new trial took place in 2008, in which he was found guilty of second-degree murder and armed criminal action. He was sentenced to life in prison plus an additional 23 years. Prosecutor Swingle said that Stephen Rios used his badge for sex and then used his knife to forever close the mouth of his secret lover. Thank you so much for listening to episode one. If you like the show, please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes, hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app, and telling a friend. All these really help shows like mine grow. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to my Patreon at patreon.com slash talkmurderwithme. I currently have bonus blog posts on my Patreon and am planning to start doing bonus podcast episodes also. I also have a blog, talkmurderwithme.com, where I've got a bunch of blog posts available for you to read. I've put the links to my social media accounts in the show notes for this episode. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay safe, friends. Stay safe, friends.